This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If there is one thing we can agree upon, it is that gas prices drive us nuts for a variety of reasons, partially because they seem oftentimes to be sporadic. Other times we know they're going to go up, but they go up a lot. And then when prices go down, we expect them to drop just as quickly, which of course they don't. And then there's the fact that you drive to a bunch of different gas stations and they all seem to have the same price, even though they're competitors. Well, that's just the appetizer today. Because let me tell you this, back in May of 2011, the price of a barrel of crude oil was, give or take, roughly about $125 for a barrel of crude. And at that time, if you went to your local gas station, the average liter of gas at the pumps cost $1.24. That was the average across this country. So $125 barrel cost of gas at the pumps per liter, $1.24. This is according to figures provided by the National uh, by Natural Resources Canada. Today, barrel of oil costs a little more, give or take, but around $60 a barrel. Yet go to the pump and you're going to pl- pay something like a dollar 20 a liter. So, to recap, oil costs roughly half of what it did back then, yet we are at the pumps paying roughly the same. There is no significant saving for the com- consumer even though the raw product it would seem is vastly less expensive. So what the heck is going on and why are we not seeing any benefits from this? Well, Dan McTague is a senior petroleum analyst with gasbuddy.com. You know him. He's on this station with some regularity. Dan, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, uh, good to be here. Perhaps another topic uh, <laughs> might be more favorable, but uh, I'll do what I can. Well, I am no economist, as I like to say regularly on this show, but when you have the price of the raw product being half of what it once was, but the cost to the consumer remains the same, it sounds a little fishy. Yeah, it does, if you look at it from that perspective, but there are a lot of factors uh, to consider uh, in the past seven years, things that have, in fact, changed, which would uh, kind of skew it uh, one way or another. Uh, the fro- the most important one uh, that can't be ignored is that we price all of our fuel, all of our commodities uh, in U.S. Uh, greenback denominated terms. In other words, uh, at the time in 2011 when we had oil trading at $125 or so a barrel, the Canadian dollar, and I just had a quick look at uh, uh, the Bank of Canada information from that time, the loonie was actually about $0.07 cents stronger than the American dollar. Today, it's almost 29 cents weaker. So let's talk uh, in terms of the difference, 39 cents. That works out to a difference to the disadvantage of consumers of at least 17 cents a litre. So right from the get-go, if the Canadian dollar were trading, uh, you know, uh, slightly stronger than the U.S. dollar, you'd be uh, seeing a decrease. You'd be paying $1.07 or $1.08 in gasoline today. And it doesn't, of course, stop there because uh, since that time, the province of Ontario has introduced the cap-and-trade tax. That's another with tax, uh, 4.1 cents plus 13%, 4.8 cents a litre. So now we're up to about 20 or 21 cents. Uh, And, of course, there is uh, two other small factors that are important to consider, and I think that's where we really need to to emphasize. Uh, Refiners, the fewer and fewer that are left since 2010, 2011, uh, are taking probably an extra five cents a liter, four cents a liter. Uh, their re- their refinery margins are much stronger now than they were in 2011. And of course, retailers themselves, although 
we have this sort of uh, what I refer to uh, as uh, gas bar shenanigans where they, you know, they start with a price in the morning and then by the afternoon they shave that down anywhere from four to 10 cents a liter. Uh, that average is much higher than it was in 2011. Average used to be of a retail margin or a retail profit was about seven, eight cents a liter back at that time. Today it's uh, about 12 at the high end. I want to go through a bunch of these different points that you just raised there, but let's go back for a second to the the gov- various levels of government. And can you break down what the, if we know all of them, but what the various taxes are that we are actually paying on a liter of gas or what, not even necessarily to the dime or to the penny, yeah. but what taxes are there that are on there? Sure. So, you know, we always have the base price, the refinery, what's called rack price, uh, which works out to about 74 cents a liter today. Uh, after that, you have the provincial government on every liter of gasoline. Its road tax is 14.7 cents a liter. You then have the federal excise tax on every liter of gasoline. That's 10. And the other uh, tax, of course, uh, which is buried in all this, is the cap and trade tax, which, as I mentioned earlier, was 4.1 cents multiplied by 13%, so about 4.8 cents a liter. And then finally, um, saving except the cap and trade, whatever the total amount is, you have to multiply it by 13%. Now, I say 13%, that's the HST. Uh, prior to July of 2010, you had only the federal tax, which uh, at that time, I believe, was uh, 6% or even 5%. Uh, the province added its 8% back then, and of course, that's quite a windfall of some $0.10 cents a litre. So if you go back to prior to 2010, uh, you know prices were significantly less because, of course, there was less tax. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Dan, we were going through some of the taxes that we as consumers pay, but I think one of the other things to remember that we often can forget is that for all those taxes that we are going to be paying on our gas when we have to go to the pumps, the fuel companies also are being taxed when they drive the trucks around. They have to pay for gas to get things there. Essentially, they are being hit with higher fees, higher taxes, higher gas prices as well, which get passed along to us. So we're really getting hit twice with this. Well, yeah, and of course, uh, the cap-and-trade carbon tax on diesel is much higher than gasoline by about a third. So you're there you're talking almost $0.07 cents a litre, and that has to be passed on. So there are a number of factors here that go with you know, how a gas station is supposed to buy its gasoline. Again, everybody starts at about the same price, $0.74 cents a litre. You have to add that 24.7 federal and provincial taxes and then multiply the whole thing by 13%. In other words, if I'm a gas station here in uh, the greater Hamilton area, anywhere from Niagara all the way back to Windsor and all the way up to North Bay, Ontario, dividing lines probably somewhere the outside of Coburg, it's all the same wholesale price of about $1.12, $1.12.5 a litre. Everything else is retail margin, and uh, sometimes you'll see them drop to one seventeen. Sometimes they'll charge a dollar twenty-five. By the way, Scott, I forgot to mention. You know, uh, following crude, would drop today, buck thirty-seven a barrel. Uh, it's dropping two cents a liter on Friday. So there is a relationship, but gasoline is not the same as oil. Uh, it's a very different commodity. It doesn't. Uh, it hasn't gone through the same process of being, uh, you know, uh, played with by OPEC, uh, where they created a glut. Uh, and that uh, depressed prices. Uh, gasoline is a very different market with very different fundamentals of supply and demand. Then there's the, and, and not to get totally off traffic, off topic, but we're paying for all these prices and all this this extra for gas. Any company that has to move product 
is also going to be paying more and passing those things along as the fuel company. So we may not even be paying directly at the pumps, but through our life, through just living, buying food, buying whatever product, we're paying even more on gas. So that the, it's, it's, it's in every facet of life. We're paying it nonstop. You are. And by the way, in the past seven or eight years, uh, it may not dawn on most people, but when you get these wonderful whiz-bang, you know, uh, reward cards and uh, uh, credit cards that say, hey, you get cash back, you get all sorts of rewards, that isn't the you know, bank or your credit card company or uh, someone out of the goodness of their heart giving you money for money you're spending. That's coming out of the bottom of the line of the, in the till directly of that gas station. So if they don't have a retail margin of five or six or seven cents a litre, they're not going to be able to stay in business. And I, I know it uh, doesn't sound like something that we should be too concerned about. Scott, I got involved in this business over 20 years ago because I saw a wave of consolidation and destruction of a segment of the market, the retail gas bar that uh, re- really did concern me because it, uh, you lost a lot of mom and pops who were very efficient and uh, kept the majors on their toes. They're now a thing of the past. Well, is that not the same in so many areas of life now that the whatever it is is crushing the little guy? I mean, yeah. and so the gas stations are no different. Yeah, no, the 80s and the 90s, it was pure anti-competition. Uh, the problem was that the Competition Act was written by the big oil companies. What the, we was happening with uh, what's called price inversions, where uh, gas stations who were also your supplier were, were, get, were pricing uh, or selling you gasoline wholesale higher than what they were offering at their own station's retail. That is totally illegal in the United States, and if you did something like that, uh, you simply have to go to any small claims court virtually in the United States and you would get what's known as triple damages. So a lot of small independents survived in the United States. They were wiped off the map here in Canada. But that was a generation ago. We now know that the major oil companies who engaged in this kind of odd behavior that was legal because they were able to change the Competition Act, written by big oil companies back in 1986, uh, got out of the business of retailing gasoline. They sold it off to the, guess what, the convenience store. Hmm. Just before I let you go, um, there is... You mentioned off the top that in addition to everything else, I think you said that the big oil companies are seeing a bigger profit margin or are seeing more that they are bringing in. Is that correct? Very correct. And the result of Canada allowing too few competitors. We have, you know, everyone shares product and uh, they're doing very, very well in Canada. If I could open up a, and invest in a refinery anywhere in, you know, in North America, I would definitely want to do Canada because, of course, it's uh, it's far more lucrative. I'm picking up 10 cents a litre today over and above the spot market for gasoline at New York. Well, and, and, you know, when you talk about lack of competition too, I mean, I, we won't have time to get into this today, but it always strikes, I think me and a lot of other people as odd in every other business, you set your price to try and beat your competitor. Uh, If you do that with food, you go on sale, you put bread on sale, you do whatever else, furniture, TVs, gas, you drive around the neighborhood and every single gas station seems to be at basically the same price. It seems to be the only business that decides not to compete with each other. Yeah, the only com- competition you see that's left now is at the retail level among retailers choosing to charge, as we see in Toronto, the full 12 cents a litre to give you a 125.9, or later in the evening, they'll drop that 7 or 8 cents a litre. It's the last 12 cents a litre where you see that up and down. The rest of it is lockstep. Taxes don't change, saving except the GST on the total amount, and of course the uh, actual product, uh, whatever uh, one particular company in Ontario decides, everyone else has to pay. You will get examples of the... Uh, you know, the nonsense that goes on on Ontario Street uh, over in St. Catharines with the two Ronnies playing their games back and forth, but they're heavily subsidized by their uh, uh, by whoever's supporting them, whether that be Parkland or that be uh, Imperial Oil. They're, they're allowing them to, uh, you know, engage in practices of below-cost selling. Why they're doing it, hard to say. 
but it does skew and distort the market, and you wouldn't see that in the United States. You see low competitive prices at the refinery level. In Canada, we just don't care. Dan McTague from GasBuddy.com. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. You would have had to have been... I don't know, under a rock somewhere in a cave, maybe on a long vacation around the world at this point, not to have heard about Bruce MacArthur. Now, Bruce MacArthur, the name may not ring a bell right away, but you know the story. He's the man who has been charged with killing six people in Toronto's gay village. And if he did what he is accused of doing, he is by definition a serial killer. We don't have a lot of those around here, which makes this story particularly unique and particularly fascinating, even if it's in a horribly disturbing way. But there is another part of this tale that has not really been told all that much, at least until today. A Hamilton-based PhD candidate who has an expertise in sexually motivated psychopathic serial killers has uh, spoke to police last summer, Toronto police, suggesting there might be a link between some of these missing people that were in that area of Toronto. And then she offered those police a suspect profile of who somebody might be who they may be interested in finding. Her name is Sasha Reed. As I say, she's from Hamilton, and she joins us now. Sasha, thanks for doing this today. No, thanks for having me. Uh, this all happened when you, and we want to walk through this story, but when you went to police and when you first discovered this or put this all together, this was before anyone had ever heard the name Bruce MacArthur. How did you realize or how did you discover that something was going on? So essentially, um, one thing that I'm doing is working on compiling a, a consolidated missing persons database of people in Canada. And one night, I was looking on websites trying to find names to add to the database, and I came across uh, four that shared some similarities. I basically took those names, put them in the database, um, and then I graphed them on, on a map and got a sense of who who these people were. Just, you know, basic skin color, where they went missing, um, who were they friends with. I tried to get the best sense of who these people were so that I could see whether or not the concerns that had been raised about a serial killer were, were valid and legitimate. Uh, and at that point, I, I believe that they, they were. So this was not a computerized program that it all goes in and, blah, 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 and it pops out as th- this is just you sitting there doing essentially detective work. Essentially, I wish it was this amazing <laughs> database, and it was just you know, CSI stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wish, but no, it was a, a night that took. I think a, this took about five hours in total for me to kind of compile and, and go through. So it took a while. And, and for the for the record, because you said you were doing this night, this is not your full time job. This is not what you do for a living. You've got to pee. No. You're working on your. This is. Is it a weird thing to say? This is what you do for fun or for a hobby? Like, how, why would you be doing this? Well, you know, I initially did this because I had an acquaintance and I guess a friend from my hometown who went missing and was later found deceased. And so I was immediately kind of interested in in potentially doing something like this and starting a database. I had not had time for the longest time, but I needed a break from my serial homicide work. And that's when I decided to make this database. And it's turned out to be a fairly big job now. Well, no, I have no doubt. And so now you're sitting there that night and you put all these pieces together and you see this, what you think may be a pattern, but I'm wondering, are, is it an aha kind of moment or are you still a little bit dubious because this isn't a TV show, so there's not like mm-hmm. swelling music that builds up when suddenly the light bulb goes on in your head. Did you look at this and say, there is a pattern or did you say, no, maybe there's something here? 
Well, I'm an academic, right? And so everything I do, I do with caution. I approach slowly and with an open mind. And I absolutely never rush to conclusions because what's what's the point? So I looked at it and once, because it wasn't just the fact that I had noticed this pattern, right? People at Church and Wellesley had been talking about this forever. And in fact, it was their information and everything that they were saying that kind of helped me to kind of build these profiles. And so that definitely, in my mind, established something that appeared more more significant. So there was already rumor or talk that some people were missing from there, that there might be a serial killer there. So that allowed you then to begin this. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So, so there had been discussion though. This was not you being the very first one to suggest that something might be going on. No, I, I was absolutely not the first person. Absolutely not. You took this, as I understand it then, at some point, last July, I believe it was, to Toronto Police. When you walk in, and again, you're not a detective. I don't know if Toronto Police have a clue who you are. Uh, When you walk in and present this to them, what's the response? Well, the response was very good. I mean, I, I have no issues with the way that they responded. They handled it very well. We spoke for about... 25 minutes and the person on the other end of the line was very receptive. I actually had four people on on that list and one of them had been found alive so he kind of helped me pull that person out. He explained to me that other people had called in and talked about um, their fear of a serial killer and at, at the end of the day I think what happened is the evidence or not the evidence but the information I was giving them was more educational than evidentiary and they thanked me, but I don't know what, what they think they could have done with it. Well, there, I mean, homicide cases are, are so rare, right? How, what are you going to do with this information? Well, and Sasha, don't forget, I mean, let, let's be honest. There are people who call up the police, we know this, who claim to be psychics or claim to be whatever. I mean, there are people who contact the police. Now, I'm not saying you're in that category, but they, I'm sure, are getting a lot of people who are bringing forward stuff. So I can kind of understand how they might be a little bit skeptical of what's coming from someone in the public. Yeah. Well, also remember, when I called, the very first thing that I said is, hi, my name is Sasha. I'm a student at the University of Toronto. And as soon as I said that, I thought, oh, crap. <laughs> crap. Yeah, prob- uh, yeah that, that, well, you know, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe they think of the University of Toronto that highly and they say, well, we got to listen to everything you say. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Sasha Reed, who is a U of T student from Hamilton, a uh, PhD candidate who went to Toronto Police back in July with a suggestion that some of the people who were missing from Toronto's gay village, that there was a pattern, and then presenting a psychological or a suspect profile to the police. And that's where I want to go now, Sasha, because this, I've always been fascinated by this stuff. I remember a few years ago reading some books by a guy named John Douglas, who I know you know, but was sort of the, what are we going to call him, the the, the grandfather of psychological profiling? Would that be a fair description of him? now, yeah. Okay, I mean, he, he was the guy or one of the people who really developed this, but you present to the police a list of things that they may want to look for, characteristics or whatever of someone if there is a suspect, if there is a serial killer. Let's go through some of these, because I find this really amazing, what you came up with. Uh, okay. First thing, you said it was going to be a man. Now, pr- would you agree that that's probably the least crazy? I mean, it's, it's either one or the other, probably, and it, it's likely going to be a man. We don't have too many serial killer females, right? No, we don't. Okay, so that one, 
I'll give you that one. <laughs> that would be the least impressive of the things. The rest of them are blow me away. But uh, you said then this is going to be a person who probably has a blue collar job. Turns out Bruce MacArthur, who again has to be proven guilty in court, he is just a suspect now, but he was a landscaper. What would make you believe, what brought you to the conclusion that whoever was behind this, if there was someone, would have been a blue-collar worker? Well, I've got about 4,600 or more serial killers on the serial killer database, and what I did from that is I just took uh, a sample and I tried to get a sense of what their education and employment position was and what I've noticed is that the majority of serial killers, uh, whether or not they were high IQ or high SES, tended to be underperformers. So they either dropped out of university or college and so didn't have a college degree, or they went to high school and that's, that's all they had, or they dropped out of high school completely. Um, people with the ability also just were not capable of holding down a job. They went from job to job and found themselves in very precarious uh, employment positions. So it, it was just what I found in my, in my database. You said that it would probably be somebody with a history of violence, or at least a criminal record. Uh, Bruce MacArthur, convicted in 2003 of assaulting somebody with a metal pipe, nailed that one again. Why would you have believed that the person had a record or had a history of this? So the vast majority, I'm talking upwards of 80% of the serial killers that I sampled, had a, uh, a history of arrest prior to their series. So that means they either were arrested for things like burglary or assault, uh, molestation, or um, they had a a serious sexual offense such as uh, rape, um, and they'd been convicted for it. I'm actually surprised that you even mentioned like burglary or something, because my guess would have been that if you're going to kill somebody, that you've probably got something that has built up to that as opposed to just jumping in there as your first violent Mm -hmm. offense. Well, what I do is track the developmental trajectories of serial killers, right? And so I see how their entire development unfolds from conception until death. Uh, and, and this offense history, it starts very small. It does usually start with little things like break and enter or, yeah. Okay. Uh, we, we touched on, you said no university or college degree. You just, uh, you just explained that he had no education known past high school. Here's the one that blew my mind when you came up with this one and got it right. This is, because the other ones, you know, okay, so you've got some things that you could predict based on past performance of other serial killers. But you said that he or she, but he, would be burying the bodies outside or in his home or certainly somewhere would he, where he would have easy access to the bodies. Uh, police recovered the remains close by in a place where he had proximity. He was cutting owner's lawns in that area. Why? H- how did you figure that one out? Because that one, to me, takes it to a new level. I think that surprises a lot of people, but let's just bring it back down to the realm of reality and realize that information is just coming from the database. Um, The majority of um, sexually motivated uh, homosexual serial killers had buried bodies uh, outside their window or in a park that they had access to and could go revisit. A lot of them kept victims in the home. Um, I don't know why they did this. I have thoughts. But, you know, not to share at the moment, but I have thoughts as to why they do this, but it's just what they did. It was just the pattern that I'd seen in my database. There were two things that you had predicted that weren't bang on. One of them was that you thought he might be a little over 30, and one was that you thought he might be a person of color. Why would those predictions have been there? Again, just uh, homosexual, sexually motivated serial killers tend to kill later in their careers than heterosexual serial killers. Again, I, I don't know why, 
but that's what the data said. We only have a minute or two or a minute or so left here, but it, it does make me wonder, you've got this database that you follow, that you look at. Do you have others in there right now that you're looking at saying, look, there could be other ones here that I seem to have put a pattern together and that might fit with this. Are there others out there that you're suspicious of? Um, so every night, in addition to adding data, what I try to do is get in touch with my researchers and ask them, like, what kind of patterns are you seeing? Is there anything important? We just had a discussion about this on Tuesday. There are some significant patterns that I'm interested in looking at uh, all across Canada. So there will be more on that soon. Well, uh, on the one hand, I say I hope so. On the other hand, I say I hope not. Uh, you know, it's, it's one, of the, um, one of those things. Do, do you think when you walk up to a police station next time, though, that they are going to, even if you say I'm a University of Toronto student, they may say, oh, yeah, but we know who you are now. Well, I think they might be a little upset with me just because I think I may have ruffled some feathers, but I hope, <laughs> I hope with all my heart that they're willing to take, take me seriously or at least take my colleagues seriously because we, we are the experts in serial homicide in Canada, so we're here to help. I, you know what, we're going to do this again sometime because the topic is fascinating and I'd love to have you in studio to do a much more in-depth thing than we're able to do tonight. But uh, Sasha Reed, uh, Hamilton native, U of T student, PhD candidate, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Thank you. Really appreciate that. A fascinating story. I'm always amazed by how people can put together these profiles and then they come out so close so often. Bright, bright, bright woman. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Well, our next story, it stinks, but it's not about love. Let me tell you that. But there is stink involved. Now... If you were listening earlier this week, and I hope you were, we hope you're listening every night. I was chatting on Monday with Don Robertson when he was in here about the joys of flying. I was coming back from a vacation last week and due to technical breakdowns at the airport, followed by weather, followed by flight cancellations, followed by everything else, turns out it took me longer to get home from Fort Lauderdale to Hamilton than it did for the people coming home from Pyeongchang in South Korea to Hamilton. They got home from the Olympics faster than I could get home from Florida. It happens. This is, this is the beauty of modern travel. However, and I pointed out, by the way, on that, in that story, that one of the real downsides, I mean, we can deal with delays. They're not what you want. They're kind of a pain. But we can deal with delays. The one thing I think that most people really don't want on a plane, well, there's a bunch of things, but is the person next to them being sick, which we had. The sniffling, blowing nose, mucus dripping guy. Yeah, you don't want that. You don't want the screaming kid. You don't want the person with bad BO. You don't want the sick person on your flight. But there's one other person, as it turns out, and unfortunately, this happened on a flight from Dubai to Amsterdam earlier this month. I laugh because it's one of those stories that you can laugh at from a distance, probably not laughing if you're on the plane. Here's the story. Uh, there's a, an airline called Transavia Airlines. Again, flying from Dubai to Amsterdam. Three guys sitting in a row on the plane. The guy in the middle... I don't know if he dined on lentils the night before, had a big burrito. I'm not sure what was going on, but the story goes that 
as the plane takes off and begins flying, and it's a long flight from Dubai to Amsterdam, he begins venting, shall we say. He, um, and, and not venting in like frustration, literally venting from the back end. He starts farting. So go, so say the two guys who are on either side of him, who are now captives on the plane, can't go anywhere. So I guess they, they asked him, so the story goes, they asked him to stop, presumably politely at first, were not met with a satisfactory response, apparently. He kept at it. Now, let me stop myself for one second here. Who, who socially thinks that's okay to begin with? If I'm in a plane, I will burst. I will literally have my insides burst before I just decide to share that with the people around me. But anyway, he decides, oh, no, I'm going to keep doing it. So they complain to him. He keeps doing it. They complain to the flight crew, the stewards and stewardesses, who apparently, so says the, the story here, they did nothing. They just said, hey, nothing we can do about this. What do you want us to do about it? They then got a little more noisy and a little more aggressive with, um, with Freddie Flatulator. Got louder, got angrier, got meaner. Didn't stop him. Just kept going. You're you're stuck in a plane. You're at thirty thousand feet. Guy next to you or in between you. Not pleasant. Anyway, as happens on planes, somebody beside you won't stop blowing gas. A fist fight breaks out <laughs> between the guy who won't stop and the other guys. Suddenly the plane has to make an emergency landing in Vienna. And guess who gets kicked off the flight? Who do you think gets kicked off the plane? Peter Puffer? No. No, he's allowed to stay on board. The two guys who were on either side of him, who were upset by the fact that they couldn't breathe for six straight hours, are the ones who get shown off the plane, along with... Two women who were also in the same row who apparently had nothing to do with this. They didn't even know who these guys were and had said nothing, but they got shown off too. But the guy who was Billy Burrito, he gets to stay on board and fly the rest of the way. Which, I don't know what the moral of the story is here. But I can tell you, there are polls, there are things, there are questionnaires that have been done asking people, who do you not, who do you not want to sit next to on a plane? And as I said, screaming kids, people who are sick, people who are wildly overweight and hanging into your section of the seat, people who have bad BO, they're always high on the list. I think I may have a new first place. I may now have a new first place. Next time I fly, the one guy you don't want to be next to is the guy who for six or seven solid hours finds more and more gas within him that he decides he has to share with you. That. I could understand. I really could understand their frustration and their anger. Anyway, there's your story for the day. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Especially if you're sitting next to me on a plane. Please, don't be that guy. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. The International Olympic Committee announced that the Russians, after their banishment from the movement, after their banishment from the Olympics this time because of their state-sponsored doping that they're allowed back in now. 
They're allowed back in. One time they have to miss one Olympics, and they don't even really have to miss it because we had all those Olympic athletes from Russia. So there were just a few that paid a price. The country, according to the people who did this, the country cheats and they miss one games. That to me seems not really all that difficult. That, in fact, as I said a moment ago, that almost makes cheating worthwhile. If you think that you could actually get your country to cheat, win all kinds of medals, bring all kinds of glory to your country, and you, for the cost, is one Olympics? I think there's a lot of countries that would say, sign me up for that. Let me bring in Baba O'Neill from CHH. Before we do, though, let me introduce him with some proper music. We are constantly looking for a proper intro song for our buddy Bubba. Does this one work for you? You guys are falling apart. <laughs> you were you were you were moving up the ladder. Like this, you guys were getting there. I actually thought you were close. The search continues. The search continues. You've been falling back though. What do you think about this Olympic decision today to say to the Russians, hey, everyone, it's all good now, it's all forgiven, it's all forgotten, come on back in, we will warmly embrace you in the bosom of the IOC once again? I actually had to bite my tongue tonight on uh, the uh, 6 o'clock news on CHH Day because that was sort of my last little end story. Um, but I feel much freer on your program <laughs> stating my opinions because we were, I think we're talking a little bit more opinionated than the actual news. So I, I gave the news, bit my tongue. So here's my take. Um, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, I feel like, um, I feel, I, I do have some sympathy for, I think it was 168, 169 athletes at the, uh, 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 what were they called? The OAR? The, the Olympic, Olympic athletes, athletes from, from Russia. Russia, yeah. I mean, thank God we'll never have to say that again, hopefully. <laughs> um, I, I have plenty of sympathy for many of those athletes who trained very hard, um, you know, in some case four years to get to whatever um, peak they were looking to get to at these games. And uh, unfortunately, it's a situation that when every when when someone cheats or a, in this case an entire country cheats and it's government based or backed sponsored doping that means everyone has to pay the price whether you're innocent or not at least in my opinion and again like i said i do have sympathy for those people that were clean but we don't know see that this is why it doesn't make any sense to me bubba if it's a state-sponsored doping program, so the state was covering for people, when you say you have sympathy for those who are clean, how can we possibly know who was clean? Well, I, I can't believe all 168 or 169 of the athletes were doping. No, fair so enough. I, so, no, that's so fine. I, I, this is what I'm saying. I'm saying I feel sorry for, for the ones that worked hard, were doing things the right way, and, you know, and, and showed up to the games with, op- with an opportunity to win the medal. But I do believe that, like every other punishment in sport, uh, it paints a wide brush. And because of the guilt, the absolute guilt of what was done, and the fact that the government had something to do with this, with the games that were actually in Russia, I think everyone has to pay even the innocent ones. Uh, the the point that you can't... Yes, we can have sympathy for those who are clean, but because we can in no way determine who was actually clean, 
means that while we may have sympathy, to me, there sh- I'm with you, there should have been none there because we don't know when they say, well, I've never been caught. Yeah, you were never caught because the government may have been passing your urine out of the lab that was dirty. We can't tell. And it goes back to, the, if, you, if you have a, a hockey team in the Olympics that has one athlete who gets caught doping, what happens to that team? The team it forfeits. Yeah. It's, it, it, one athlete causes the team to go down, same in other sports as well. So it, it, I, I look at this and I just think the IOC, once again, they, were, they almost had it. For about 10 minutes there, they almost got it yeah. right, and then they started to soften, 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 and now it's just a squishy mess. Well, I mean, I guess you know the, the Russians put the you know fed the IOC a, a tremendous amount of money for television rights, and I mean I could go on and on and what kind of you know money was given to the IOC monies that we probably don't even know about um, for those games in Sochi, and I, I just think it's an, in, an incredible embarrassment, a bad decision by the IOC, and you're right, there, there's a feeling amongst many athletes around the world today that you know exactly what you're saying. They're like, wow, now it's all okay. And, you know, I know you're kind of saying there, too, that, you know, we don't know which athletes are clean or not, which still kind of puts the burden or the blame on the athletes. I, I don't even blame the athletes. I blame Russia here. And I, I'm not going to get all political, say, about Putin and, and, and all, you know, the government. And, but, again, they were as guilty and found guilty. The investigation was as detailed. I mean, it was like a 300-page investigation detailing all the things that were going on and i think the russian government were the ones that needed to pay the price along with the athletes i mean that ends up being the the factor tree down the line that the, the athletes end up not being able to participate but i believe the russian government should have been punished well here's I what should, the, the you're russian right. uh, it, it, the russian entered the olympic committee needed to be punished more i know that uh, they weren't allowed credentials and i think it was a 15 million dollar fine but that's still not enough here's what should have happened is that if you're going to let the russians back in because it was a government thing there should have been a condition put on it that every russian athlete who is in the olympic stream would be tested for drugs every week for until the next Olympics at the cost to the Russian government. Because to do all those things would cost a lot of money. You want your athletes back in and you did the state-sponsored testing or doping, you are going to pay for independent people from WADA to come in and test every one of your athletes all the way through. So there's no opportunity for them to cheat. Then I'm okay with them coming back. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, and I, and I would have extended the testing to before... And athlete, uh, before and after events. Yeah. You know, immediately. I mean, we've seen that at, uh, you know, uh, CFL is an example where all of a sudden, you know, I'm sure you and I have been at Tiger Cat practices where all of a sudden an athlete disappears. And that's the CFL bringing in the guy for testing immediately. Um, and it comes by surprise. And I believe it maybe even should have been by surprise that there should have been facilities there, which I'm sure there are. And I'm sure it's an expensive thing. But as you said, Russia takes care of it. If you want to prove that you go, you've gone clean, we'll actually prove it. And I am the other people that I feel more sorry for by far are any athletes at these Olympics who had who didn't win a medal, and one of the spots on the podium was taken by a Russian athlete. And whether you say, well, they probably had to be clean. It, to me, it doesn't matter. They should not have been there. And if I finish fourth and a Russian is on the podium with what we know about what happened leading up to this in the last Olympics, 
To me, that's I, I'm I'm totally sour if that happens. Yeah, well, I mean, look at uh, look at the uh, ladies. I mean, I, even to further your point, there, Caitlin Osmond, you know, who won the uh, bronze medal yep. in, the, in, yep. in the women's skating, and she should have maybe been gold. She should have been gold because the two Russians finished ahead of her. Finished ahead of her, right? The, the, the there you go. And the young Russian. I mean, why not a gold for 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 the Canadian in this situation? And again, these are excellent skaters that I'm sure probably were clean. But again, be, due to the ignorance and the, the, the moxie and the, the outright gall of your country and your government to do what they did, you will unfortunately must pay the price. Let me switch. Uh, I agree with you 100%. But let me just switch here for a couple of minutes, a few minutes, because there is a topic that I wanted to get with you because uh, get on with you in this one because I find it so fascinating, and I think you're going to bring an interesting perspective to this that may in fact be different from my perspective. I don't know. There is a move afoot right now that there are a bunch of people who are pushing for Willie O'Ree, who is the first black man to play in the NHL, for him to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. He played his first game in the NHL 60 years ago last month. And so they're saying with, you know, 60 years as an anniversary, he's getting up there in years, that Willie O'Ree should be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Now, we know the social impact of him being the first African-American, Afro-Canadian to play in the NHL. We also know that he only played 45 games in the league and scored four goals. Would you put him in there? Well, I've always believed that the Hockey Hall of Fame, you know, um, was a place for superior players, um, players that were above average um, in case great uh, greatness I mean, the, the ending of a great career to be feted amongst your brothers um, for being an unbelievable player which he was not he broke a barrier I mean in the case of baseball with Jackie Robinson outstanding baseball player broke a color barrier yeah, in he, the did he did two things he did two things he did two things O'Ree broke the color barrier and you're right his career did not last long now whether that was the fault of the Boston Bruins and other teams and what was going on at the time in the National Hockey League, we will never know. That's behind the scenes material that maybe they wanted to keep him out of the league. I cannot answer that question. Now, I also understand that he also had an eye injury, which, you know, hindered his performance mm-hmm. as well, too. I, what I do believe, Scott, in this situation is that Willie Rory is, um, I think, I mean, obviously he's being feted everywhere, which I think is a wonderful thing for what he did, as he said, 60 years ago. I believe there could be part of the Hall of Fame, um, a, some type of section of the Hall of Fame reserved for him um, with a plaque and his picture or whatever the case is to explain to people, uh, you know, basically 100 years ago, 100 years from now, that he was someone that broke the barrier. So if you want to say in the Hall of Fame, um, I'm going to say yes in terms of, you know, some type of, display or right, something yeah. like that. But in terms of being with the greats, in terms of the players, I don't think that would be fair to the, you know, the greats of the game. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a super, it's a great point because I would love to see something in there, and there probably is already, I don't know, but I would love to see some sort of display that points out the history. But you're right, to be an honored member, Paul Henderson is not an honored member in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and uh, he's not. he didn't break a color barrier, but he may have scored the most the biggest goal in the history of the game. and But, he, you know, that was a moment. That was a, a singular moment. Here's the other thing with Willie O'Ree that I don't know the answer to this, and this could actually change things a bit, but when Jackie Robinson broke into 
the majors. Baseball was a segregated sport. They had the Negro Leagues. It was, it was, they were not allowed in to baseball at that time. Black sure. athletes were not. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There was no black hockey league. There was no league that had the, that prevented Willie O'Ree from coming in that I know of. And so it was, it's a slightly different scenario from what Jackie Robinson went through to get in there. And, yeah. and so, you know, there are parts here. And as you say, Jackie Robinson, if Jackie Robinson had been a white athlete, and had been allowed to play baseball even without breaking the color barrier, you would still say, based on his credentials as a player, he's a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. Willie O'Ree, not so much. It's it's a tricky one, because I, like, I look at this one and I think, Bubba, if I say Willie O'Ree should not be in the Hockey Hall of Fame right. as an honored member, you sound like you're dumping on a minority, and that's not what this is. It's not that he was, that his role was not important in the no, game. I, I think you just need to define what the Hall of Fame player is, right? And I think, I think it becomes quite simple to me, um, at least in my brain, with my definition of what a Hall of Famer is. And in this case, I don't believe he should be in the Hall of Fame for what I think the Hall of Fame stands for. Again, um, now, could he go in as a builder? I, 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 I'm okay like that. I think we could use Bernie Custis as an example. Um, again, someone that broke the barrier as the first black, uh, black starting quarterback in professional football. Now, for reasons out of his control, he was the Tiger Cats starting quarterback for one year and was outstanding. But for reasons, obviously, of, of, of you know racial reasons, um, for reasons that may be being pressured by ownership, or we'll never really quite know the true answer. The coach at that time chose to make him a running back the year after. So, and his career lasted, you know, four or five years. You know, very good player. Maybe could have been even better than you know had he been allowed to have been a quarterback for for his entire career. These are things we'll never really know. But at the end of the day, he was in, put into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame as a builder. And someone that we remember as a very good player that did something very, very special that's, you know, celebrated many, many years later. Yeah, I, I would be all in favor of Willie O'Ree going in as a builder. Because uh, I, I, I do believe that there should be a place in the Sports Hall of Fame for people who do things... Outstanding contributions outstanding, to the game. And, and even if it is... See, I think that could... Again, the, the Paul Henderson thing is always a bit of a sticky wicket for me because you... you on the one hand, you say, yeah, you, you authored one of the signature moments, maybe the signature moment in the game's history, but as a player over a long period of time, you were not a Hall of Famer. So what do we do with you? Well, I think, and you touched on it, you have a display that would show, so when people visit the Hall of Fame, it's not like you're ignoring Paul Henderson or the 1972 team. There's a, there's a whole statue outside the front door, a, a thing with their with that team. I kind of look at the same way with Willie O'Ree, despite the fact that they're pushing. And, and you feel bad. I feel bad for saying that. I, I don't think you should feel bad for saying that. I mean, Scott, the, what is the, I mean, okay. <clears throat> I know <laughs> I love bringing this up with you because <laughs> it's always so much fun. When we generally talk about players making the Hall of Fame, what's the first thing that we do? We go to the stats. Of course. Right? I mean, when I talk about Derek Jeter going to the Hall of Fame, Look at the stats, um, and you know, and championships, and those are the things that I always. Those are the first things, and I always always think to myself when someone says, "Should this person be a Hall of Famer?" 
I always think to myself, did I think this person was a good player or a great player? And then I go look at the stats. Willie O'Ree didn't play enough games to be a Hall of Fame hockey player. So whether, what do you... whether it was his fault or not, I cannot answer that question. But when you play 45 games in any sport, that j- unless you did something in terms of uh, on the ice or on the field or on the ba- on the hardwood, you did something so crazy that we that's never happened before. I, I just don't see that as a Hall of Fame hockey. Player. So what do you say to those who argue that what he did? was so socially significant that there needs to be that honor for him. And hence he goes in as a builder, and, and we honor him as a builder of, a, of the game. Someone that did something that was either first or contributed to the growth of the game as we know it today. And I think when you look at the definition of what a builder is to the game, someone that contributes to the, ga- the greatness of the game through an, either an individual accomplishment or leading a team as a coach or an owner or a general manager, I think that is the correct place to, to put Mr. O'Ree. And, and I say that with all due respect. Of course. With incredible respect. Uh, of course. And, and to be a builder, I mean, that, 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 uh, that doesn't belittle what he... It doesn't he, diminish his role? No, I mean you're you're in the Hall of Fame. Whether you're a builder or you're a player, you're in the Hall of Fame, but not as a player. You know who else should be in as a builder? This is getting off topic, and I'm not going to go here. But you know who else? Because he can't be in as a coach, and he can't be in as a player based on his credentials. Don Cherry. How is Don Cherry not in the Hockey Hall of Fame right now? Well, I, I mean that's an argument that that, that will stem tremendous argument uh, and may go for years. You know, Don's getting up there in age, and I, I think this is a discussion that will go on for many, many years, perhaps even after he's gone. Which would I be can, a shame. I can, I can see the person, uh, as much as I think, yes, because uh, is there anyone that waves the Canadian flag and waves the flag for Canadian hockey more than that man? Uh, he'd be, it'd be hard-pressed to find, you know, 10 players, were, that, 10 people that, you know, that, that are ahead of him. Now, what I will say is that he's also found a way amongst his braggadocious sort of behavior at times, and part of his shtick offends people. And I think that's a problem sometimes. And in some cases, it has offended Canadians. And, of course, I'm speaking of people that live in the province of Quebec who are also Canadian. So I think there's a little line that sometimes over the years, and I can't just talk about now because he's a lot tamer than he what he used to be. But over the years, uh, a European hockey player, it's the Hockey Hall of Fame. He has offended European hockey players as well, too, with you know a certain style of play or maybe even as something as silly as wearing a visor. So I think that's where your discussion starts. There is no doubt in my mind that he is eventually going to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Eventually. And what drives me nuts is what the Hockey Hall of Fame people did to Pat Burns and what they did... Well, Pat Quinn, I guess. Did Pat Quinn get in before... He passed away. He did, didn't he? Or, did, or had he already passed away? I can't remember now. But they, the, waiting till yeah, someone, waiting till someone goes when they are going to be going in to me is it just seems cruel. Why not let them go in and enjoy it, even if they're in failing health? Don Cherry is going into the Hockey Hall of Fame someday. Put him in while he's alive. But then you break a. I mean, I guess Mario Lemieux uh, is he the only player where the rule? Was broken. Do, what, the, do, five, the five-year rule. Um, Wayne Gretzky was put in the first year he was eligible. Okay. Or no, the first year after he retired, he was put in right away. Okay, so I mean, so the rule's been broken twice, right? I mean, 
players, I think. Oh, no, but I'm not asking for them to... They're all eligible. As a builder, you can you can go in oh, whenever. Point. Okay, that's true. That's true. You can go in whenever. You're not a play, you're not, it's not your playing career anymore. So I look at this. Don Cherry, it's the Hockey Hall of Fame. There is nobody in hockey, save for maybe Wayne Gretzky, who is alive today, who is more famous and more synonymous with hockey than Don Cherry. There just isn't. And he's going to go into the Hall of Fame at some point. Why wait till he's gone and stick it to him that way? If he's going to go in, he's going to go in. Let him have that moment. And, and you know, yes, he's offended some people. You know what? There's guys in the Hockey Hall of Fame who were horrible guys on the ice and you hated playing against them. And Marc Messier cross-checked guys and left stick shards in their teeth and knocked out all their teeth and, and gave guys concussions. He's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He offended people. Right? Different style of offense, but he offended people. I think getting an elbow in the mush or a stick in the mouth offends people. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the on the ice stuff. But yeah, I, I just think sometimes when you know, you're know you looking, and again, we're, it's funny, we're talking about some racial stuff here. I, he, he, you're getting into some, some sticky ground in some of the places where Don Cherry has gone to. I, again, I agree with you. Should he be in? Will he be in? Yes, at some point. But I think there is reason for discussion and as i said this is some of his stuff that is self-induced i mean don has been known for his mouth like him or lose it or and he knows it he he he's okay with it i mean he he's an outspoken fella just before uh, i let you go because we're really we've gone over already but let me ask you one more thing there with this push to put willie o'ree into the hockey hall of fame you know that if you take an opposing view there will be those who will accuse of racism that is a that is a thing that will come up to someone who is accused of racism if the discussion happens and you say i just don't think he's should be going in as a player is it a defense to say i'd like him is it a fair thing to say what we've just said that he's he's a builder i'm fine with a builder but not as a player well as a black man i must be a racist against the the own color of my own skin I mean, that, that to me, that, that not only is that silly, it lacks ignorance. I mean, it, it, it's incredibly ignorant is what I should say, sorry. Because I think at this point, um, if you can raise logical reasons for why he's in or, or should not be in, I mean, I, mean, I mean, that's going too far. I mean, anyone that would say that, well, I think it's a racist thing that he's not in there, well... I mean, I could show you other racist things about the sport of hockey, and I don't think that this is one of them. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, you can catch him tonight at 11 o'clock doing weather, and I won't even make you practice your weather, because tomorrow you're going to have a lot to talk about, I'm told, with the weather. How do we go? I saw, when I, on my short drive from Burlington to Hamilton to work, I saw two people with the convertibles down. It's, we're going to have two, ten, How do we go from that to 20 centimeters of snow? I don't know, but I would advise those people to close the convertible. (laughs) (laughs) Or else it's going to be one miserable ride home tomorrow. Bob O'Neill, you can catch him at 11 tonight. Appreciate it, sir, as always. Always a pleasure, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.